Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, I'm Natalia Shpilova-Said. I'm a host of New Books in East European Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Today, I'm delighted to speak with Tom Kiankowski, second edition of Eastern Europe, published by Academic Studies Press in 2021. Tom Kiankowski worked, studied, and traveled in Poland, Hungary, and other regions of Eastern Europe from the late 1980s to the mid-1990s. He gained a functional literacy in Polish, Hungarian, Russian, and German, while also studying other Slavic languages. Tomek holds a degree in history from the State University of New York at Buffalo, uh, and he also has a master's uh, in applied economics from Southern New Hampshire University. Since the late 1990s, he has held positions in the business sector, ranging from bond analysis to data research. Currently, he's a director at a research firm that specializes in producing market analysis for professional services, a capacity that has seen him author numerous reports focusing on Eastern Europe as well as the the financial services industry. Hello, Tom, and thank you so much for joining me today. Hello, Natalia. Well, first of all, congratulations on this new edition of Eastern Europe. So this is the second edition. Before we discuss this uh, current uh, book, um, would you say a few words about the first edition? When was it published and who were the editors and authors of the first edition? Um, So um, the first edition came out in October 2013. Um, That was a very long effort. I'm I'm the sole author uh, of this effort. Um, I had uh, many friends both in the publishing industry and in academia who helped with the editing side uh, and, and the organization, uh, but um, that um, ultimately was a uh, project that um, I quite frankly didn't think would see the light of day, um, but it, uh, I, after about 10 years of, of work, uh, to my surprise, New Europe Books ended up picking it up and, uh, and it uh, was published. Mm-hmm. So, and how's this uh, second um, um, edition organized? Who's your primary audience? Um, there are three basic groups uh, for both editions. Um, after coming back from Europe, um, uh, I was getting a lot of questions about the region. what was happening, what was going on there, why, what is it like there? Um, so, um, there, the three basic groups were um, in no particular order, were simply those people who had um, uh, an ancestry from the region, who were interested in their grandparents that come from there and they didn't understand, they wanted to understand more about it. Um, the second group were those who were just see- seeing things in the news, obviously in the 80s and 90s, so it was very topical. Um, and then the third group was, um, there were uh, those people either... Um, from a business perspective, for various reasons, whether it's from investment or for exploration, who were interested in what was going on on the ground and what opportunities might exist there. So um, these were kind of the, the three groups that I had in mind. And as I was writing it, I tried to um, describe, uh, uh, give a sense for what 
what it was like to live in the area in these different parts uh, of, of Eastern Europe uh, throughout its history. So I, I wanted to give him a sense for um, the experience of, of what it was like compared to you know, other areas that they were more familiar with. So I have this question about uh, how Eastern Europe is conceptualized and presented in the second edition. But before we get to this question, I would like you to share a little bit about your own uh, trip to uh, Eastern Europe for the first time. And uh, how did this um, first experience in Eastern Europe uh, probably change the way you um, saw and understood uh, Eastern Europe? Um, so I grew up with a Polish family, uh, and that, uh, that was obviously what kicked me in this direction. Um, what uh, I think really started my, really refashioned um, how I see the region was going to Hungary. And, and it was actually, um, uh, an, it, it was an intended visit, but I didn't intend to stay very long. I ended up getting an opportunity to study there, and I stayed for, for some years. Um, but uh, what that did is it, it opened my mind to uh, just how much of um, uh, how much was shared. So there were a lot of things that were Hungarian that I recognized as a whole. Um, there were common cultural elements, uh, but um, so I, I was surprised at this notion of a Central European cultural zone existing, and it got me thinking about well, what exactly is Eastern Europe? What is it? Why is Poland Eastern Europe? What is, is it an economic definition? Is it a cultural definition? Is it simply a geographic definition? And that is really what this book is for me. It's an exploration of that question. What is, how do you define Eastern Europe? Um, and, and how has it been defined uh, over history? Mm-hmm. So uh, how is Eastern Europe conceptualized and presented in this second edition? Attention is given to the countries that today constitute what we call Eastern Europe. But as you mentioned in your volume, borders in and of Eastern Europe shifted in the past and they are shifting today as well. So what are the boundaries of Eastern Europe uh, in this uh, recent edition? And I was wondering, since you also mentioned your background in economics, whether the way we think about Eastern Europe uh, changes depending on that perspective that we take, for example, economics or geography or politics or culture. Um, I have a book. I'm not going to mention the uh, I'm going to shame anybody, but it's one of those books that is a horror for any academic person where they, they spend years researching a topic, they, they write it, they, they publish it, um, and you know something dramatic happens a year or so after it's published that completely shoots the thesis down. Uh, and this book was published uh, in 1989, but written over 88 uh, and 87. Uh, it was a, kind of that question that how do we define Eastern Europe from an economic perspective? What does that mean? And uh, the the consensus was, and there, there were multiple authors, you know, several editors, uh, but the consensus was basically to be Eastern European is to be backward. Uh, it's to be uh, just caught up in the past, unable to change. Um, there are variations, gradations of this, where Poland is, and the Czech lands, for instance, may be more adaptive to change, but in the Balkans, less so. That was written, again, in the late 80s at a time when the world was bipolar, when there were basically two choices, and where with the collapse of one side of that, that global uh, paradigm, it looked like one, the other side had won. Whereas now here we are some decades later, and we see a very different world that we didn't anticipate. Um, today, uh, you know, we see a world where Asia is increasingly a, a growing factor economically in the business world, uh, but other regions as well. Brazil, although it's stumbled recently, 
Um, India has become an important player. So the way we define economics, the way we look at, for instance, manufacturing, um, where, where manufacturing was happening in 1985 versus where it's happening now, it's completely changed. And it's shown that the, the basic underlying theme throughout that book that things can't change. The Eastern Europe, you know, part of the defining element of Eastern Europe is it can't change. It will always be the more backward region. Well, today we live in a world, as I mentioned in the second edition, where the Czech lands, the, the Czech Republic or Czechia, as they're, they're trying to rebrand themselves, um, uh, on average, uh, according to the, uh, the IMF, uh, is uh, the average Czech uh, can expect a better material life than the average Spaniard, the average Greek, the average Portuguese person, even the average Italian. That's the world we live in. So clearly that, that definition doesn't work. Mm-hmm. So, as you mentioned, the uh, boundaries and the borders are shifting. So, but what knowledge about Eastern Europe did you intend to construct? Uh, I believe this question is tied to a different one. What knowledge of Eastern Europe did we have in the West, in the States in particular, and what knowledge is lacking as well? Um, that's a really interesting, so epistemological problem, um, and it's. Uh, it's um, it's always existed. I had a colleague, a business colleague, who was very worldly, very well-traveled, had been in the U.S. Navy, but also in the business world. He simply spent years of his life outside of the U.S. And yet when he went to uh, Hungary for the first time, he was shocked to see modern cars, buildings, telephones. He really didn't, I don't know what he expected, maybe the mud hovels or something. Uh, but um, I experienced that as well in the 80s, where even Western Europeans who were, again, worldly, well-traveled people were were um, amazingly unaware of both how people lived in Eastern Europe, but also um, what the history was, what the connections were. And again, it was one of the, one of the impetuses I had. Um, I think this still exists today in the sense that, and quite frankly, um, so I've benefited from that. Um, I've been able to publish this book precisely because uh, it is a problem and um, there are academic sources you can go to, but they tend to be written for academic audiences. There is less in the popular um, market, uh, something that provides a basic overview of what the region looks like and and, and what it is, why it is. So Mm -hmm. um, I've certainly benefited from that. But, um, you know, coming back to the question of how you define Eastern Europe, you know, um, I've definitely had a lot of feedback over that, and and there really is no definitive answer. I exclude the Caucasus, for instance, even though, geographically speaking, it's Eastern Europe. But it's a microcosm. As you know, it has a very unique history that that goes far deeper than any of the sort of post-Charlemagne, post-Roman states in Europe. Um, uh, It uh, it has a very unique um, uh, thread of history unto itself, uh, so it's more than just a microcosm of larger European history. Um, and for that reason, I, I excluded it because uh, many of the currents there that define Georgia and Azerbaijan and, and Romania are very different than Estonia or Poland or Bulgaria. Uh, another example was Finland. Someone recently called me out and said, why, you know, especially in the 20th century, you should at least include Finland. Um, and there certainly can be an argument for there. So, um, uh, but, but, Problem, the problem of defining the region uh, goes back to your, your question of, well, what do we, you know, why, why does the world need to engage it? Why are they engaging it? What are the economic relationships, the cultural relationships, the business relationships, even uh, things like the tourist industry, you know, taking off in Prague and the Brodnik, for instance. Uh, 
Um, so, and that's been kind of an interesting thing for me to watch over the past few decades is more people have gone to the region and are learning about it, but there's still, um, a big gap, uh, as we see, as, as the region makes the news a lot, Hungary, Poland, the Orban regime, Kaczynski, et cetera, um, and certainly now Russia with Ukraine. Um, I, I still find when this happens, I start getting a lot of very basic questions again from a lot of different parties, not, not just what's happening, but and what do I think is going to happen, but what, um, why, how did we get to this point where mm-hmm. this sort of situation is, is mm-hmm. unfolded? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's interesting because as uh, I was reading your book, uh, I felt like um, this project was o- not only about including as much information as possible from different perspectives so that we keep this information somehow balanced, but it's also about emphases. Uh, like some regions receive more attention while others receive less attention. Uh, the same with some um, uh, events, uh, for example, uh, um, given, given the significance of the Great Famine in Ukraine in 1932 and 33 for the strengthening of the Soviet uh, rule, there is little discussion of this atrocity designed by the Stalinist regime. And uh, in other words, the complexity of this part of Eastern Europe is somewhat uh, overshadowed by Russia. So could you comment on how you uh, decided to uh, establish various emphasis in this book and to what end? Um, There were two contradictory goals uh, in, in that. And, and it's something I've struggled with, and you can probably feel it, uh, that tension uh, as I was writing this. It was, on the one side, um, I had to present, and I, and I resisted this as much as possible, but I didn't want to just have a list of names of battles and generals and kings and et cetera, and wars. Um, but I had to have that side of it because you needed to know these as markers. You know, if you walk around Tirana or Warsaw or St. Petersburg, street names, business names, you know, this, this history permeates. I mean, it, it's um, how they describe their present often. They use the, the past. So you need to understand at least a, a, have some sort of basic grasp of that side of it. So I had to do that. But um, what I wanted to do uh, was to show how um, uh, I, I looked for those um parts of the history where there were, you could see relationships changing. And that was, uh, I think the key defining element. So, um, there are some who've said that I, I tried to con- I'm constantly trying to show, uh, relationships with the region outside of the region. So re- things that are connected to Western Europe or to the Asian step or to North Africa or the Middle East. Um, I had some fun with that to be sure, but really what I was looking for was how did things change, uh, where did things change in a way that, that changed how people lived in the region? That was really where I wanted to put the main egg so people could see, you know, that there's a, a dramatic difference in, let's say, Prague of 1650 versus 1750. There's, mm-hmm. there's a big difference. Why? You know, why, why is that? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, and at times you also draw parallels between Eastern European phenomenon and um, American. For example, when uh, you speak about the Ukrainian Cossacks, you mentioned the uh, American West um, cowboys. Um, and I also appreciate how you describe the step. And uh, if you let me read out a passage from your book, it's uh, page 93. It's a beautiful, beautiful paragraph. Um, so, page 93. Uh, the step is important in European, especially Eastern European history, because for some 2,300 uh, years, from about 1,000 BCE to the early 
30th century CE, there was a massive and almost constant westward flow of humanity across Eurasia, scraping and grinding like a vast human glacier past all the great civilizations, China, Central Asia, India, Persia, the Middle East, before finally deposing them abruptly and violently at the end of the step in Europe, in the Carpathian Basin, the great northern European plain, or the Balkans. Constant waves of nomadic tribes, um, I'll skip a little bit, fought uh, their way or were pushed westward by this massive conveyor belt stretching from China to Europe, whose momentum was maintained by constant military pressure from the civilizations along the way. I feel like um, we can spend hours unpacking this paragraph because uh, it's so dense in terms of how important the step is, not only in terms of uh, establishing uh, relations between uh, different uh, regions, but also in terms of culture and in terms of how the world is constructed through this uh, inter, uh, interaction, I would say, with the step. So, um, uh, keeping this um, uh, keeping this in mind, uh, what was the most fascinating part of Eastern Europe for you while you traveled, probably, and when you came back, and when you decided to write um, a book on it? Um, part of that that passage was born of, uh, as you can imagine, Hungarians are obsessed with the step, as as and and. So in my Hungarian studies, uh, we spent a lot of time looking at uh, vocabulary, the evolution of vocabulary and how they use that uh, to trace of the Hungarian migrations uh, down the Ural Mountains and across uh, southern Russia and Ukraine into eventually into uh, the, the Carpathian Basin. Um, but it, you, I, I was presented with such an amazingly detailed story of peoples um, and it becomes clear when you when you start delving into that world um, uh, just how uh, influential and impactful uh, that, uh, that that step was. And it, to the extent that I'm amazed, um, even in broad histories like uh, Norman Davies uh, in English, he, he uh, produced a, uh, in the 90s uh, a book called Europe, um, and he certainly expands the boundaries more than most popular historians that I've seen, but even he doesn't really dwell on the stuff very much. Uh, the British archaeologist, Barry Cunliffe, he, for me, has been a hero who has made this very obvious connection, saying, you know, Europe is a peninsula. It's a nubby little peninsula on the end of this huge Asian, Eurasian landmass. And Europe's history, for the most part, is, is flowing and interacting with that landmass. And that, for me, so that's where the step uh, becomes important, and it, um, uh, it it's from just about any perspective, especially as genetic studies are, are beginning to emerge now. Um, it, to nobody's shock, or they shouldn't be shocked. They, they, unfortunately, they have been. I, I mentioned a study. Uh, I quoted a paper in there on uh, uh, findings that the Irish. Uh, it's been fairly definitively shown that uh, the modern Irish population is a significant portion that derives from a population that came from the steppe. Mm -hmm. um, we kind of knew that. The British have, have also accepted that. Um, that that's, uh, there's been a, a lot more work recently around the arrival of the Beaker peoples from Central Europe and, and the impact that had on metallurgy in the British Isles, etc. Um, it's just amazing how, uh, how um, transformative the step has been, and yet it's just not a part of, of histories. It's seen as an Eastern European thing, not a European phenomenon, something that fundamentally reshapes you know, all of your history. Mm -hmm. 
Well, I would like to follow up on your statement about your interest in detailed stories of the peoples. And uh, indeed, uh, the history of uh, the history of uh, Europe is very, very entangled. And as uh, the moment you start looking at uh, one country, you realize that you find yourself uh, involved in all other countries around. And then the thing is, how do we narrate the story of one country or of one um, people while giving credit to other countries that also somehow uh, shaped uh, the um, um, the development of the country that we interested in. So, in other words, uh, how did you approach this entanglement? How did you situate yourself in the middle of everything, so to speak? Uh, because um, the book really provides a lot of details about uh, a variety of countries. And uh, yes, so while you read the book, you feel like you uh, trying to find your way in some uh, maze, in some uh, labyrinth, and uh, um, you have to make sense of all these multiple narratives. However, the book does create this um, uh, impression of uh, diversity, impression of uh, multiplicity, because uh, Eastern Europe is not just uh, a geographical locus. It's not just one place. It's all th- those entanglements that construct this notion for us. So how did you approach this uh, entangled um, narrative and what was the most challenging part uh, for you to write? Uh, well, first of all, you described my personal journey very much precisely. Um, uh, I started with just wanting to understand the history of Poland. That was going to be my career. Um, but I discovered as I really delved into it that I needed to understand German history and then Czech history and then Russian history and certainly Lithuanian history, Swedish, then Jewish, and the list kept growing. And then when I started digging into those histories, I had the same phenomenon again and again. Um, and that's where, you know, eventually I found myself at a point where I had to say, okay, you know, as I, I said at the beginning, what is Eastern Europe? I have to start defining this notion of Eastern Europe. Um, but uh, as how I organized it, I approached it in many different ways. There was a suggestion early on that, uh, that I just take the modern countries and go backwards from there. Um, mm. uh, to take a, a Longfellow approach and, and just, you know, go sequentially backwards and uh and try to capture everything that way but the problem for me is that that's artificial that suggests that it assumes that you know nation states are somehow a natural organization and or a natural way to organize uh politics and and governance and and peoples and of course we identify in europe in particular ethnicity and nations with nation states um and so uh i i took the approach um, I, I never found, I think, an entirely satisfying one because, as you say, there's no way that you're not going to end up in a labyrinth. Um, so it's kind of like uh, un, un, each chapter is sort of like uh, untying or un, trying to um, unmangle uh, a bramble bush um, and to, to follow each of the different branches uh, as you're untangling them from the other ones down back to the, the core of the bush for that chapter. That's really the best I could do because the problem is, is um, in, in the 20, as I said, in, nowadays we organize everything around nation states, but 200 years ago there was a very different uh, political uh, organization uh, consensus in Europe and then go a few hundred years before that. And then how do you deal with um, uh, with those peoples, for instance, the, the Wemko uh, or the Hotsul, uh, you know, the, the Seke, the mountain peoples, for instance, who were less tied to 
state histories, um, but who've played an important role often in the region's history. Uh, how do you how do you include them and, and take and, and take account for them, or cities like Dubrovnik that sort of had its brief own history, so uh, independent history, or Transylvania? So, um, it, it, like I said, it became a, a that bramble bush approach of okay, at the beginning of each chapter, we're going to start untying all this, and and we may not necessarily get to a neat, clean base at the end, but mm-hmm. you'll at least be able to separate and understand some mm-hmm. of these moving parts and, and the elements, you know, the roles they play. Mm-hmm. So what was the most challenging part for you to write, or maybe the most challenging region that uh, you struggle a lot with while uh, putting your words together? Um, quite frankly, it was the World War II chapter, uh-huh. um, because it's, for me at least, it's within living memory. I don't mean myself, but I, I grew up, as you did, with, surrounded by people who had experienced those events. And so there's a very personal dimension to that. Uh, mm-hmm. And and. Um, when I was in Hungary in the 80s, uh, I was able to uh, meet a lot of people and speak with a lot of people who went through those events and gave me that perspective, a Hungarian perspective of the war. I had a very, obviously, very Polish-centered uh, one before that. Um, it was difficult to maintain both an, a, a sort of 30,000-foot level uh, macro view of the events and to really try to recreate how the people within each of these groups saw the events and why they why they made the choices they did, why they behaved the way they did. Um, I, I, and that was something I really struggled with. And I, and I can't say this, I think, in the, the section on the Holocaust, of, you know, mm-hmm. trying to understand what was it like for a Polish policeman? What was it like for an Italian farmer? What was it like you know, to, to go through these events and why did they make the decisions they did? Uh, but it was very personal because I've I've got family who went through these events, and you know I, I have a lot of uh, you know very personal stories I've collected over the years. So that's why I think the beginning of that chapter, and, and just anecdotally, I know that um, this is that is the chapter that is used most often, um, and I, I see it in syllabi a lot. Uh, shows up. And I think it's because of the beginning of that chapter in particular. I really wanted to pound home the personal experience uh, just through brutal numbers mm-hmm. of uh, this is, you know, to make it clear, especially to Western Europeans, quite frankly, just how different the experience of World War II was. Yes, for it's never fun being invaded. The Dutch people, et cetera, all suffered. But, you know, it, it was a very different experience. Mm-hmm. And I'm trying to capture that without, um, without dragging the personal too much into the story. Uh, mm-hmm. Interesting, because um, uh, indeed, uh, uh, personal experiences sometimes can help us write, but on the other hand, personal experiences will pose some additional hindrances and challenges as well. Um, So, um, moving uh, forward with um, this designation of uh, Eastern Europe, uh, how do you envision uh, this notion of uh, Eastern Europe in the future? Because as you pointed out, our understanding of Eastern Europe changed, and also what constitutes Eastern Europe today also changed a lot. So what's what's your um, vision of what uh, Eastern Europe will be in, let's say, 20 years? Um, in the epilogue for the second edition, um, I, I address this, and uh, or not, not so much in the future, but where it's come since uh, 1989. And uh, I think um, one conclusion I come to, and again, coming from the corporate side of things, I'm sorry, uh, I, I've had 
Poles and Czechs in particular, and some Hungarian friends take me to task for still using this Eastern European uh, moniker to refer to them. Um, uh, but so the bad news is the name seems to be sticking, uh, and the Cold War definition of where the borders are seems to be definitive. At least, you know, the, the people, generations like ours that experience the Cold War are still around. Maybe that'll, maybe that'll fade as time goes on. But um, I think the positive side of that story is that um, it isn't, it, as I experienced in the business world at least, um, and again, this is mostly professional services, um, it's the, the usual negative connotations that come with that, that name, Eastern Europe, um, are being replaced slowly with some positive ones. Uh, it, it's a place where you have highly educated people. It's a place where uh, that is, in some respects, business friendly, where uh, uh, where you can. Uh, there's a lot of offshoring, um, uh, especially around technology and mind, uh, math and science, um, where um, uh, and and also from the tourist perspective, I'm, as I mentioned earlier, I'm, I'm meeting a growing number of people reaching out to me or saying I'm going there, or well, when there's not a global pandemic shutting things down, uh, but. Uh, I'm meeting a growing number of people who have no personal connection to Asia, who are taking Danube River tours or are visiting St. Petersburg or whatnot. So I think the positive side is that uh, being an Eastern European is less of a bad thing. It's, it's, it's in, in certain parts of Western Europe, especially among the older generation, there's still the, the older connotations. Uh, you know, they're, they're all thieves, they're all lazy, they're, it's, it's always economically backward, and et cetera, and they just want to come here and, you know, get on our welfare programs and that type of thing. You see that sentiment, uh, unfortunately, play out politically in Europe uh, today, uh, Britain, for instance. Um, but um, the reality is, is, at least in the business world and in some popular sense, there are positive elements. Uh, I've, I've had people contact me recently about Christmas ornaments. Um, they're, they're really interested. They're wondering if I could help them get Polish or Czech Christmas ornaments. They're becoming very popular. Um, so I, I, you know, the, the definition is, is shifting, um, but the, the geographic borders aren't moving. But at least I think there's that side element of, um, I was asked in a, in a recent uh, talk uh, about uh, botanical tools again, the Balkans, those apparently were becoming popular again before the pandemic. So um, I, my hope is that in 20 years, I have deep concerns about um, democracy in the region and security for obvious reasons. We don't need to go into the details on those, but my hope is that uh, we've already been here and I, I, in the second edition of provide the example of Slovakia in particular, which in the 1990s, mid and late 1990s, it really slid into a almost mafia-like state and yet was able to come back from that um, and, and was able to get back onto a democratic path. Um, it's not about right wing or left wing. It's about um, uh, empowering um, individual citizens uh, as much as possible, um, and uh, certainly in, in a in a region where uh, the state has had a very heavy presence for the last 100, 150 years. Um, I, I think that's a very positive attribute. I think it's an empowering attribute. So that's something I worry about, and I hope that those countries that are sliding back a bit. Um, will recover, uh, but there are some positive, uh, you know, stories in the region, and we have, uh, for instance, Romanians and Estonians becoming very loud advocates for democracy in the world. So um, my hope is that going forward, 
um, uh, the region will, uh, and then I call out some specific examples in the, in the uh, new chapter, but um, uh, you know, the, the concern back when the European Union began expanding uh, into Eastern Europe in the 1990s was, are we going to, is this going to become a, a black hole region where we just throw lots of money and they end up dragging down the European Union? There are there have been problems. There definitely have been problems, but there have been a lot of very positive stories. There's been uh, some uh, examples um, that have shown that, that the investment and the effort that the European Union made um, has been worth it, both for Eastern Europeans, but also for the larger European story. It's improved European security, improved European uh, economic security. Um, there was a surprising uh, elements of stability came from some Eastern European during the 2009 economic crisis, for instance, the IMF, uh, there were a few countries that, that really didn't need much help and were able to help and contribute uh, for the recovery afterwards. So um, I, I hope that that path continues um, for the region. Mm -hmm. And I can but ask this question, how does your expertise in Eastern Europe specifically um, inform your career in the business sector? Um, it is, so there are, there are a lot of, the, the good news is, uh, I have a lot of competition, uh, in the sense that a growing number of people, and as I said, uh, it's very common, um, for people who have no personal connection to the region now, business people, um, will meet, will start talking about something, and, and obviously my name kind of, you know, starts that conversation, whether they know about the book or not, but. It's very common for them to say, "Oh, you know what? There's this, you know, I, there's this restaurant in Karakuf or in Budapest or Sofia. Really like, or that hotel I prefer when I'm there." So it's becoming a, a more familiar region, and there's a growing number of people uh, who have uh, a lot of experience uh, that, that is, I'll say, competitive with my own, but is uh, helpful certainly. Uh, so um, that's a positive story. Um, I think where I try to add, and this is where the, the book. Uh, really tries to help, uh, especially in the business side, but others as well, is to put things into context. Uh, you can't just draw GDP numbers and uh, and and you know IMF numbers and and make decisions based on those. There's a cultural element. There are larger um, historical stories that are in people's minds, uh, and they influence uh, how they behave in the region, how they think. Um, it was very natural, for instance, um, I predicted uh, in Hungary um, uh, that uh, Austrian and German banks would become prominent very quickly. There was an old relationship there. You know, uh, Kadi Anstalt and others have, have deep roots in the, in the country, uh, and they've, they've formed an important part of the financial rebuilding, uh, of the financial sector rebuilding. So there are those types of things I, I know I understand in some level, at some level how some people are going to react to certain phenomenon um, based on the historical elements. So I try to provide that context. Well, thank you so much, Tomek. Thank you so much for your conversation today and, of course, for your book uh, that uh, help us better understand Eastern Europe. And I would say, unfortunately, uh, very often Eastern Europe is kind of underrepresented in some college or university curriculum. And I do hope that this book is a contribution to show uh, that Eastern Europe is a fun place not only to travel to, uh, but also to study. Because for me, uh, personally, Eastern Europe is a uh, is a place of not only charm, but also 
of multiplicity and diversity which is extremely uh, appealing and which is extremely um, uh, appealing to study. Thank you for having me, Natalia. It's been a fun conversation. Today I spoke with Tomek Jankowski, author of the second edition of Eastern Europe, published by Academic Studies Press in 2021. Thank you for listening to New Books in East European Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network.